And I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever thought you knew something, but it ended up you had it completely wrong? Right, so like, I love ice cream. I mean, I, I love it. Like my brother and I in college would down a gallon of ice cream in like one to two sittings. Like it was just one of those things where we would just pound it. And I love chocolate ice cream. Okay, like I, I know, like I go to the places and they have all these crazy flavors. Um, somebody's like, well, I, I, try the jalapeno mango. I'm like, no, that's disgusting, right? Keep your hipster flavors to yourself. I want chocolate ice cream. I've tried other things, but I know that chocolate's going to taste better. So I'm just gonna eat that. And after, the first few bites of ice cream are, are just amazing. They're amazing, you can taste it so richly. It's so good. And two years ago, granted I'm 38 years old, two years ago, I turned to my wife and I said, man, babe, I wish that our tongues wouldn't get so cold that you can't taste ice cream after the third bite. I mean, can you imagine like eating ice cream and tasting it the whole time through? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she was like, um, I can taste it the entire way through. I said, what? She said, what are you talking about? And, and my brain, at the age of 30, I realized my brain had told me a lie my entire life that our tongues got too cold after the third bite, that you couldn't taste it anymore. Apparently, it's just me. I have some weird dairy allergy that I can only taste it after like three bites. It blew my mind. I had it wrong my entire life. I grieved that day. <laughs> Knowing that all of you all can taste ice cream the entire way through, and I get like three bites worth. Now, how often do we do something ridiculous? That's ridiculous. How often do we do something like that spiritually or biblically, where we think we know, but we don't, right? One more kind of crazy story. Pastor John in South Florida said he was at McDonald's one time. He's, he's in line. He's going to get something to eat, and there's this old Jewish man talking to another friend, and he was describing the heavenly scene and describing heaven to this guy's friend, and the man said to his friend with gusto, heaven is where the angel's prostates fall. The angels' prostates fall, huh? Like, do you, do, you, do you think you meant that the angels fall prostrate? Is that what you were thinking, right? Like, theological correction was needed in that conversation about heaven, right? <laughs> and unless it's your first time here today, you know what we're talking about. We're in a series called The Good Life, diving into the realm of God, money, and finances. And there's definitely a lot of things that churches get wrong with money, granted, but there's a lot of things that people get wrong when it comes to what they believe with the Bible and money. And I'd argue that no word puts up walls faster and cause more people to fold their arms and distrust than the one that I have the privilege of preaching on this morning, <laughs> tithing. For a lot of you raised in church, I, I get it, right? There's an immediate eye roll because you're already thinking about the 15-minute mini-offering sermons that happen before the sermon. You're thinking about the times that the buckets got passed the second time and the third time. You know, you're thinking about the pastor's wife getting on stage and crying the mascara running down her face and telling that if you don't give, this or that is gonna happen while the pastor drives off in his Ferrari, right? There's a lot of confusion, hurt, misunderstanding that comes with this concept of giving in general, but especially with tithing. And I think it's really just because a lot of people, including pastors and people on church staff, don't fully understand this, or it gets cloaked in such awkward and self-serving presentations that the meaning gets lost in a sea of confusion and manipulation and distrust. And I think a lot of times, we simply have just gotten it wrong over the years. So I wanna do some biblical clarifying and explaining this morning. If you'll give me a shot, I'm gonna ask your permission to just have a shot to explain this biblically without any manipulation, without any underhanded agendas. Do I have your permission to go there this morning? All right, let's do it. 
Because I think a lot of times there's this poor presentation and pressure that people feel around giving and generosity and tithing at church that have stigmatized something into a duty that was meant to be a delight. And I realize that this may be an uphill battle for some of you, but I wanna break this down because I think it's sometimes we think we realize what something is, but we have it all wrong. And I have to just start with the fact that I don't think tithing is a church issue. I think it really is a discipleship and a heart issue. All right, I'm not after your money, okay? Greenhouse is not after your money. There will not be an offering when I'm done. We preach on money like every three to four years, right? I mean, this is not a monthly or annual rotation. Um, you know, this is something, we don't even pass buckets around here, right? So, but what matters about this is that if you wanna be serious about Jesus being your Lord, we need to be faithful to the scriptures in every area of our lives. And yes, that means even breaking down what the Bible has to say about money and giving, because we don't want church attenders here. We want disciples of Jesus. I'm not after your money. Jesus isn't after your money, but he is after your heart. And God is after your heart. And just like Pastor Mike preached two weeks ago, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, that where, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So this really does matter. And on one hand, there's a problem of ignorance because a lot of people really don't know what the Bible says about money and finances and tithing and generosity. And on the other hand, there's an underlying problem of fear, control, and greed, right? I mean, how many people, honestly, how many of you like to be in control? I know I do, man. I, just, I like to be in control. But God loves us so much that he begins directives in his word within the first four to 12 chapters of the entire Bible. He starts addressing this issue so that we can flourish and thrive and have the good eyes that Pastor Mike talked about last week so that our lives are full of light and life in this area specifically. So if you just pray with me and we're gonna dive into this this morning. Jesus, we, we do wanna give you everything. You are worthy of it all. And so, Father, speak through me in your word and let us see you for who you are, which is the generous God that loves us and wants us to emulate you in that response. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I wanna start by nerding out with you guys. We're gonna talk about a hermeneutical concept that will help guide this conversation this morning. And for those of you who are new to church, hermeneutics is the study of the interpretation of biblical texts and principles and there's a hermeneutical understanding called the principle of the first mention. All right, the principle of the first mention is a guiding, uh, is a guiding kind of principle for studying scripture that says the first time a particular idea or doctrine is mentioned in the Bible, that that is important because the first mention is usually the simplest and clearest presentation of that and that our subsequent understandings of that doctrine or that idea are more fully developed on that foundation. And I say all that because I think the first mention of offerings and the first mention of any time someone gave financially in the Bible have very much significance and weight when it comes to our understanding of biblical generosity. The first one's in Genesis 4, verses one through five, very famous passage. It garners the, the first mention of an offering of any kind given in the Bible. And it says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the, Lord, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain's offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. 
For a long time, I just kind of thought this was kind of an arbitrary thing. Like, I guess he just liked Abel better. I'm not sure. Maybe it had something to do with animal sacrifice because we see that, a lot of that in the New Testament. But when you look at what the text says, you'll notice there's only really one big difference between the two offerings. The scriptures say that Abel brought the best fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Cain, however, just brought some of the fruits of the soil. All right, so the real difference here between the two offerings is that Abel's offering was his best and his first fruits. And there seems to be something about this idea of best and first fruits that we see unfolding throughout the entirety of scriptures, right? Nowhere do you say God saying, you know, if you got something left over and you wanna give it, yeah, sure, whatever, man, that's good, right? Why? Why does he not say that? Because when we give our first fruits and our best, there's a faith and a trust that's involved. If we give God the first, there's no guarantee that there might be more. All right, think about this. If you're an Israelite farmer back in the day, you have one cow and that cow gives birth to one calf and that's all you have at the moment and the law says you need to sacrifice that calf as an offering to the Lord. I mean, that's kind of a big deal because functionally you're giving your livelihood to God. You don't know if that cow's gonna have another calf. I mean, you're kind of giving your everything to Jesus, to God, to Yahweh in the Old Testament. So the first fruits of, of the Old Testament law, the Israelites are acting in faith that God is going to be their provider and he's going to sustain them with what they do not see. Sound familiar? Right, Hebrews 11:1. 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this principle is all over the Bible. The Bible talks about consecrating the firstborn son, the firstborn of the flock, the firstborn lamb, the first of your offerings, the first of, of, the, of, the, of the tithe of the, um, what am I trying to say here, the grain and all the things that you're growing in the fields, your crops, right? And there's a ton of scriptures. We have a few of those gonna be up on the screen right now. This is not exhaustive, but man, Numbers 3, all these different places where it talks about this principle of the firstborn. And giving the first fruits, I mean, it's just a major way of building up your faith muscle, right? In the 21st century, when we give at the beginning of the month, before you pay anything else, you give to the Lord, you're functionally offering the first fruits of your livelihood and adhering to the hermeneutical giving principle of the first fruits found in Scripture. And this is a display of faith, right? When you put your faith in someone and they come through, then your trust increases. And this is what we see when we give the first fruit. All right, now hold that thought because the other principle of the first I wanna highlight for you is the first time that someone gave any type of not only just a, a offering like from the field or anything, but also a financial offering included in that. And that's Genesis 14, 17 through 20. It says this, after Abram returned from defeating Kedolaomer, there's a good boy name if you're looking for one, um, <laughs> and the king's allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is gonna be known future as Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, blessed be Abram the, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So here we see Abraham's blessed by the priest who serves Yahweh, the one true God, and his response was to tithe 10% of everything that he had. Now I wanna stop there for a second because at this point, I just wanna point out the fact that most people who do not tithe either don't know about it because they're just new to church or they have some philosophical beef with tithing because of two primary reasons that I hear. The first is tithing comes from the law. I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace so I don't have to tithe. And true, we, we are not under the law, but the concept of the tithe was 
before the law of Moses with Abraham was reiterated with Jacob in Genesis or 28, 22 before the law, right? So that argument doesn't really hold a ton of water. I will get some pushback from people that say, well, Matt, you know the animal sacrifice was before the law, so using your logic with the tithe, wouldn't that mean that we still have to sacrifice animals? And if you're looking at this like a Pharisee, then, then yes, that's true. If you're looking at the letter of the law, yes, and somebody bring me a goat. Let's do this thing, man. Like, I mean, blood all over the, this is what happened back in the day, right? Thank God we don't have to do that because when you look hermeneutically at the principles of scripture, you'll see the principle of the pre-law sacrifice as well as the sacrifices required by the law is there to point to a need for our covering and atonement of our sins, which is ultimately fulfilled in who? Right, you, you got the church answer, right? Jesus, right? <laughs> it's Christ who, according to Hebrews 10, nine through 10, says of animal sacrifices, says he sets aside the first animal sacrifices to establish the second Christ sacrifice. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the principle remains, but has been satisfied through Christ. Hermeneutically, this is good news. There's no blood on this altar. Amen to that, right? Because we don't need animal sacrifices because Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God is all sufficient. Can I get an amen? One person over here, thank you. <laughs> Now, the principle, however, remains. The principle of the tithe remains, and that is that we give generously as a worshipful response to God's provision. I hope you know your money's not your money. It's the money the Lord has given you. It's a pretty sweet setup, right? You get 100%, you give him 10% back as an act of worship for starters. I mean, that, that's a good deal we got going on here, right? And I'll be honest, when I first started trying to be generous and giving as a disciple of Jesus, I needed the tithe, which is the call to give 10% of your income to the church you attend to help move you in the direction of faithful giving because I just needed somewhere I was just giving without direct control where that money was going. The tithing is kind of like the training wheels of grace giving. It's kind of like the bare minimum of obedience. And I just wanna be clear, like some people are like, well, I volunteer hours, that's, that's my tithe. Or, or I took my friend out to dinner, that's my tithe. And, and tithing is giving 10% unto the Lord, right? So I've been doing this for 20 years, about, give or take. And since I've started doing that, my, my family just, we've fallen in love with giving. Like it's just so much fun. There's so much adventure and generosity when you just say, Jesus, this is yours. I'm a steward. I'm not the owner. Do what you will. We've had so many wildly fun stories. We give to Greenhouse. We give beyond 10% to Greenhouse. We also give to missionaries and projects and organizations locally and globally. And it's just so much fun. And I'm gonna get into that in a second, but the tithing principle, though, has scriptural wisdom that goes back to Abraham who gave freely to this priest Melchizedek as an act of worship. And the principle that follows is all throughout the history of God's people and is kind of as the starting point and the guide of generosity. And I wanna just caution those of you who are biblically opposed to the tithe, just to guard your heart. I'm gonna say this with a smile, right? Don't, don't let that be an excuse for your ungenerous heart that's not even willing to give 10%, if it's not to the church even, just to rob you of the adventure and the joy of giving with God, right? Which is tapping into the graceful generosity that he shows us 
that could change the lives of other people around you. There's just such an amazing thing that happens. And the crazy thing is like this only really happens and the pushback only happens in affluent Western cultures. If anybody's traveled overseas, if anybody's talked to missionaries, I talk to missionaries, Sam all the time, and he's just like, Matt, a lot of the places we go, they do not have money, but they will tithe their chickens, they will tithe their eggs, they will give anything and everything they can. We just have this problem in America. My kids and I call it stuffitis, right? I hear Christians all the time fighting for biblical reasons to keep their money and their stuff. And the real question is like, what, what do you want? Do you want affluence or do you want freedom? Because you really, it's, it's one of those things, like generous believers have freedom. They have freedom from the God of money and the angst of trying to hold on to that. They understand that giving freely is normative for disciples of Jesus. This is not extraordinary. This is not something that just some people, this is normative Christianity. We love the generosity that Jesus shows us through the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and we wanna be conformed into his image in every way, but just not with our money, right? It's like, Jesus, don't be crazy. This is my bank account. Like, don't, don't touch that. Uh, the second big pushback I get is I don't see tithing in the New Testament. Well, I also don't see a, a mandate saying that we can't look at porn in the New Testament either. Right, so let me ask you a question. How many of you feel that women and men who are humanly, usually human trafficked and forced to objectify themselves for the sake of satisfying your lust is okay? Any takers? Biblically, anybody, right? So, so here's the deal. Somebody could come back to me and say, hey, preacher, man, porn's not in the Bible. So I'm, I mean, I'm kind of like free to watch porn. I mean, Jesus said not to look at a woman lustfully. I'm not looking at a woman. Technically, I'm looking at a screen or a recording of a woman. So it doesn't really apply here because the Bible doesn't explicitly say I can't look at a screen. So I'm not technically lusting after a woman. I'm just enjoying the video. It's different. How many people think that's just a biblically dumb argument? Anybody? Yeah, okay, about half the room, okay? So we've got some issues. <laughs> we've got some issues. <laughs> yeah. But why do we think that's wrong? Because nothing I technically said is untrue. Because there is inherent principles that we read throughout scripture and Jesus talks about that allows us to discern what is right or wrong and lines up with the rest of scripture in certain areas like lust and sexuality that gives us insights and directives that might not be explicitly stated in the New Testament. And, is, and it's true, tithing is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament and we're not bound by the law of Moses, but the pre-law Biblical principle of tithing and generosity seen throughout all of scripture still applies. And this is where I think we just need to do some heart work. Okay, because here's the deal. Greenhouse is not after your money. I said Jesus is not after your money. He is after your heart. And money has a way of capturing and directing your heart more than any other thing almost. Jesus says that himself, right? Tithing to me is a heart issue. Let me just be super clear. Tithing is not a compulsory mandate, it's not required, but it's a foundational giving principle that God highlights almost immediately in Genesis. People say, I don't have to tithe. My question is, why would you not? If this is arguably the foundational biblical principle that leads to a lifestyle of grace giving and generosity, the question is like, why, why would you not? I have yet to hear a really great answer to that. I mean, I can tell you why people push back on this and spoiler alert, they're all heart issues. Right, I've talked to people, I've been at Greenhouse for 15 years in a, in a ministerial role, in a pastoral role, and there's four predominant reasons why I heard that people don't tithe. And by tithe, I mean, again, giving 10% of your income to the church you attend. The first is just distrust. People are like, man, you just don't trust the church at large because of very valid abuse issues that have happened over the years and centuries, and so you just don't believe that the local church is gonna steward your money well. 
The second is fear, right? You're just terrified that if you actually give 10% away that your bills might not get paid. It just doesn't work on paper. You're like, Matt, listen, it doesn't work. And I get that, we're gonna talk about that. Third thing is control. Bottom line, you don't wanna give up control of your money because you want to direct it where it goes. And finally, the fourth one is just greed, right? We have closed fists when it comes to money and generosity and making excuses because God is, your God is your money. I'm gonna break these down. Let me talk briefly with distrust. Has the church been crazy terrible with money at times? Absolutely. Just like all the retailers that you freely give your money to that you buy your clothes from who use child labor and the apps that you pay for that sell your information behind your back. But it's crazy to me that their misuse of money and power doesn't stop you from continuing to give your money to them. So let's just air out that radical hypocrisy right now. But in all seriousness, tongue in cheek, right? But, but when it comes to churches though, I really think it's super important that you do your due diligence. I mean, if you come to Greenhouse, I hope you think our vision is, a, is worth investing your time and your talent and your treasure into. If there's distrust, come ask questions. We have nothing to hide, okay? So if your lack of generosity comes from this distrust of the church that you attend, and we are, if Greenhouse is hindering or stifling your generosity and your heart being soft, then I would encourage you to go to a church where you feel comfortable with how the finances are run. Don't let us be a stumbling block because of your generosity or due to our dis, your distrust in all the way we steward money. We want you to be generous. So if you need to go somewhere else, that's fine. But I want you to go, because this is a discipleship issue. This is not a greenhouse issue. This is a heart issue. We want you to do what God's called you to do. If you can't do that here, then you're invited to go somewhere else. I know Pastor Mike's like, man, what are you, what are you doing, son? Um, but like, but he, listen, if we're after your money, I'm not gonna tell you to go to another church. <laughs> Here's the deal, trust the church you go to. The second is fear, and this is legit, especially if you're like a single parent or you're having a hard time making ends meet. And this is something that the Lord really taught me as a young man in the faith. Um, I was saved about five years but by the time I got married. And when Tracy and I got married 16 years ago, we just didn't have a lot of money, all right? We lived in like a one-bedroom, small, roach-infested apartment. I'm not talking about the big roaches. You know those little creepy roaches? Like, I, it, was, it was so gross, and it was so bad. And it was just kind of one of those things. We had to laugh about it, or else we'd get really freaked out. Um, like, we would literally, in the morning, I would get my flesh water, she would get hers, we'd go to the kitchen, I'd go, one, two, three, go. I'd turn on the light, and we'd just start hitting. And it was a game. We had to make it, we made it a game. And like, it was crazy. Every day we'd kill 10 to 20 a piece. Like it was just so wretchedly disgusting, right? But that's what we got, man. That's what we could afford. Anybody ever been there, right? Even though times were tight though, we felt the promptings to give even beyond our tithe, even when it was terrifyingly fearful to do so. I remember two vivid moments that the Lord did almost immediately after we got married that really helped kind of codify this idea of giving and how the Lord responds. One was in this, about the second month we were married. I was still job hunting. That's what you get for being a religion major at UF, right? <laughs> I tried desperately to find a job anywhere. Um, Tracy's getting her master's at this point. We're trying to pay for that. Needless to say, we're, at this point, we're like living off of wedding money at this point, right? So, but there's this time, a few months in, we felt the Lord's prompting to give away like $300. And at that time, that's like, I don't know how we're gonna make stuff work. I don't know how ends are gonna meet here. So we gave it away, we're like, ah, like we did it. And we're just like, ooh, we're trying to be faithful, right? And I don't remember if it was like a day, I always get details wrong and Tracy tells me afterwards, she's like, that wasn't actually what happened. So I'm gonna just corroborate over here. Um, it was like a, few, a day, a few days later, we give $300. 
I get a card from my Uncle George, he's a pastor in Ohio, and he just said, hey Matthew, thinking of you guys, just felt like the Lord put this on my heart. Guess what was in that envelope? $300, a check for $300, it was just wild. A few months later, we, we were, again, we were tight, but, but presents are a really big deal in Tracy's family for Christmas. Anybody have a family like that where presents are a big deal, right? So we had set aside money for presents, and we felt, again, another prompting to give like $500 away, and we were like, oh, this is gonna be tough because we've gotta go to Inglewood, which is where my, my wife's from, and just kind of be like, hey, I drew you a card, right? I mean, it's like, you know, just trying to figure out how we're gonna make this work. We, we, we gave the money away. And again, a few, this is about November, so we're like, we don't have a lot of time to save up for presents at this point, so um, we give that away. A few days later, I get a card from a cousin who I haven't, ever, I haven't functionally seen since I was like five years old. I don't even remember what she looks like, honestly. She writes me a card that we got married in August, and we, she, she writes us a card, she says, hey, Matthew, hey, Tracy, we're so excited. I'm sorry this is so late, um, but man, congratulations on your wedding. Guess what was in that card? 500 bucks. You know, it's just when her husband started 1-800-CONTACTS. Don't feel so bad. <laughs> but the Lord was training our hearts for this adventure of generosity. Now, here's the deal. We don't give to get. God's not a karmic genie where we spread the love and because the universe brings it back to us. That's, that's, not, how this, that's not how the God of the Bible works. But Psalm 37, 25 through 26 says this. I was young and now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken of their children begging bread. <laughs> Amen, right? And here's the deal, most people stop there, but the kicker is verse 26 that describes what righteous people actually do. It says, they are always generous. They lend freely. And I love this kicker, and their children will be a blessing. That's great. Amen to that, right? But this type of giving, it trained Tracy and I from the beginning to be generous and to trust God in that generosity. Even, with, even if ends were not going to meet, he showed us he would always come through and he would always come out, like really step out, when, or he would always show up when we stepped out in faith and generosity. So if fear is holding you back from giving, from tithing, from giving tithes and offering, man, I would encourage you to step out. Right, if that's all you can, just start there. I have yet to hear a story where somebody's like, I'm gonna give to the Lord and he just totally forsook me. Like I, I hear, I have a ton of stories of single moms and families and people who are like, you know what? I'm just gonna do it and have all these amazing stories of how God came through. Now it might not be fear for you. The third reason people don't tie, a lot of times has to do with control. And Jesus knew the principal effect and sway of money. Your heart always follows your money. Always. Few things reveal your heart and direct your heart like money does. You can look at somebody's bank account and see what matters most to them and what they're actually putting their trust in. And if you wanna, if you wanna find out if you have control issues with your money or stuff, just try giving something away. Like whatever it is that's got a hold on you, like can you actually, I'm not telling hypothetically in your mind, I think I could give that away, like give it away. Like that, that's one of those things that will help you figure out if you are the ruler of your money or your money is the ruler of you. This also works with stuff, right? I remember the first few years uh, we got married, I purchased my first Mac laptop. I drank the Mac Kool-Aid, I have never turned back. Like I was just, I was so in love with that machine. Like, I mean, I would make a big deal, like when I was opening it up, I was like, I was like <laughs> so everybody could see the apple, I'm like, 
That's right, right? I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. Um, we were in a microchurch at the time, though, and, and we, a single mom was in the microchurch. Her husband had been deployed to Iraq. She was pregnant with her, her second child. The first child was, I think, under two, um, and, and her husband passed away in, in duty. And so she's this single mom, like just totally trying to get her stuff together. She was not the breadwinner, so she is struggling. She's trying to go back to school, but she, didn't, she had to go to the library because she didn't have a, a computer. And so I remember I was praying one day and the Lord said, give her your laptop. And I remember saying, no. <laughs> I said, no, Lord. Here's the deal, here's the deal. I'm trying to be a good steward, it's your money. I could buy a PC for like 300 bucks. I mean, I'm, it's, it's a really good deal for her, it's a good deal for you. I mean, I tried to bargain with Jesus, like, but he knew that wasn't the issue. It was my heart's posture. It's so trivial and I'm so embarrassed to say that a laptop had a hold on me, but it had a hold on my heart, right? And God was just in his grace forcibly like opening my hand with an act of generosity because he wanted to remove the control issue that I had with my stuff. I wanted to control what I gave and whom I gave it to, but trust doesn't work that way, right? Giving up control means trusting God. Not giving up control means not trusting God, right? It's trusting yourself. It's not faith, it's a lack of lordship. And tithing will specifically rip your hands off of your control because you're giving it to the church. And at that point, you kind of functionally lose control of what happens to it, which is why you need to trust your church. But tithing is not giving to other ministries that you get to direct your money where it goes to. That still gives you control. That's what the Bible calls an offering, which is above and beyond the tithe that you can give. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But a tithe is a complete faith of act. We say, God, do what you want with it. And again, this has been patterned from us for us since Abraham, right? Abraham gave 10% of everything he had to the priest Melchizedek. He did not say, hey, Melchizedek, I really want this to go to, uh," you know, he, he just said, hey, here it is, Lord, you are worthy of it all. And he released control. Right, this principle can be found in the law as well in the New Old Testament. Again, we're not bound by this, but how many of you know that it's a good idea to read the whole Bible, including the Old Testament? Right? It gives us a fuller picture of the character of God revealed in the scriptures and corroborated by the word and gives us these biblical principles that we can see happen all throughout the scriptures. It becomes clearer when we do, right? So Leviticus 27, 30 through 32 says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it, right? Every tithe of the herd and the flock, every 10th animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. The tithe isn't extra credit. It's just, it's just mere obedience and giving, right? These are the training wheels of generosity that help further cultivate a lifestyle of generosity. And at the time, it cared for the, Le- the Levitical priests who are ministering to the Israelites, Now, we've gotta be honest though, okay? So that control is the wonder twin of greed, right? Which is the fourth reason people usually don't tithe. See, tithing helps you to see if you're doing just the obedience standard. These are like the training wheels, right? These are training wheels. I mean, you ever seen anybody in the Tour de France with their $12,000 bikes have training wheels on the side? Like, no, of course not. Because they've matured as cyclists. And when we mature as disciples, giving becomes a joyful act that goes beyond just mere obedience. Right, giving, giving after the tithe, giving after the tithe is in my mind where, where giving truly becomes a delight. 
It's so much fun. Jesus says, though, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You cannot choose the effect, but you can choose what is affecting you. Is it greed or is it generosity? Well, I don't give, but I'm not greedy. Then, then what are you? Like, there's a reason Satan's called the deceiver. No one who is greedy thinks they're greedy. This is an if-then relationship. Where your treasure is, there your heart's gonna be also, period. But when we give freely, it comes from a place of just deep joy and satisfaction, knowing that your giving is furthering the kingdom of God and creating pockets of heaven here on earth with your finances and with your giving. Like, think about how you feel when you buy a homeless person a, a lunch and you sit down and have a meal and hear their story. I mean, that just, that just does something to your heart. If you've never done that, that's, uh, that's just a, a sidebar application. Go do that. Don't, don't just give money. Like, sit down and, and talk and be with that person. Like, we had a microchurch. Um, I went down and preached in South Florida a few weeks ago. We had a microchurch down there. They, somebody invited a homeless man to the microchurch. And the microchurch at first was like, oh, this is different. Okay, like the girl who's like hosting, girl who's hosting was like, oh, I'm not really sure how I feel about this. But long story short, by the end of the night, they're praying for this man. They go out and buy him $550 worth of, of like supplies and things like that. They lead him to the Lord. They get him into, a, uh, into like a faith-based uh, homeless shelter. I mean, it was an amazing story. Tell me that doesn't change their hearts. Or when you tithe and you give at our church, like we, we did this last Easter, I believe, like where we, we, we gave to and we helped purchase a building in the middle of one of the darkest human trafficking epicenters in the entire world. And this building, which used to be a brothel, has been for, I think, like decades and maybe even centuries, like has now become a place of restorative ministry, healing and salvation in the literal heart of darkness. I mean, how cool is that? Or when you spontaneously give, and you, you ever have those moments where the Lord's just like, you're in like Publix or Walmart, it's like give $100 to this person or $500 to this lady and you're like, I hope you're on, Lord. I hope I'm not giving to some crazy person. Like, but when you give to this woman and she breaks down crying because she's a single mom whose car just broke down and she was praying that morning, Jesus, help me get through it. And you become that agent of transformation in her life and you're the one who gets to be the conduit of God's blessing. That's not only transformative for her, that's transformative for us. It's beautiful. And this is when giving gets less of a cold and necessary decision, like paying your mortgage or your car payment that you don't really have a choice to, but you just kind of have to, and more of the adventurous joy of your heart. Because when your giving is connected to your love of Jesus, and it's seen more like an act of worship, like the songs we sang earlier, or our heart response to the beautiful things that God has done, like we see with Abraham, then it just changes everything. Because giving really is not a requirement but it is a response. It's a response. It's part of the sanctification process when, where we're conformed into the image of God. Just like good works don't save us, right? We're very clear about that. By grace, we are saved through faith. Good works don't save us, but they are a response to the salvation that we have received. In view of God's mercy, we do these things, right? And if we're not truly under the law, but we are under grace, then we as grace givers should joyfully increase our giving as we become more aware of the generous grace God has given us through his son, Jesus. Here's the deal, man. We should not just settle for living our lives just barely not worshiping money and treasures. Like, it's just, it's, it's so sad when we live our kingdom lives defensively, 
Like a lot of people in church, they just live their life like, I just don't wanna sin. What a terrible vision. Like what a I'm just not gonna sin. I'm gonna white knuckle this thing into heaven. Like that's, that's like so terrible and it's not what Jesus asked us to do at all. It's the same thing with finances. Don't just react to your heart and its posture. Proactively guide it where you want it to be. All right, don't just react to your heart and its posture. Proactively guide it where you want it to be. And we can do this by seeing generosity as tied to our generosity of our God. Because generosity is not just something we do, it is who we are. Okay, that's a, that's a big statement. Generosity is not something we do, it's who we are. All right, I'm gonna give you a very simple kind of theological framework. I shared this, I think, like a year or two ago in a sermon, it's worth repeating. You can just ask yourself four questions when you're looking at any type of principle or any type of scripture or something that you find within the Bible. And it's these four questions. Who is God? That's your kind of theological question. What has he done? That's your Christological perspective. Who are we? That's our ecclesiological perspective. And what do we do? That's your missiological perspective. You can sound really smart too if you're friends. Be like, well, let me ask you, what's the Christological reason? No, but, but who is God? What has he done? Who are we? And what do we do? These first three, God, it says, so basically God's being leads to what he does, his doing, which leads to our being. These three things are called indicatives. They don't change. God's character doesn't change. What Christ has done doesn't change. Who we are in light of Christ doesn't change. But those three things should direct what we do. Okay, so let's look at this through the, the lens. I'll give you an example. Through the lens of tithing and generosity. Who is God? God is an unbelievably generous God who has given us his very best. All right, what has he done? He's gave, he has given us his first fruits, his son, Jesus, right? Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. God himself gave us his first fruits. So what do we do? We reflect the Father and we give our first fruits and our best via tithe. And then we are generous beyond that because we wanna reflect the generosity of our Father and his son, Jesus, who on the cross gave us what we did not deserve. Right? I'm sorry. Who are we? Yeah, we are the recipients. And so this spiritual DNA has been imparted to us and what we do, we give accordingly. Guys, this is who we are. Like some of you, I think, just need to be reminded of that reality today. It's because the more I understand the grace of God on my life, the more I just wanna give back to Jesus in response, not just my money, my whole life. I'm just like, oh, Jesus, you are just so worthy. The more I dive into scriptures and I just look at the beauty of this man, Jesus, and what he's done for me, the more I joyfully realize how truly indebted I am to him, even though he said, Matt, you're not indebted to me anymore because I've already taken care of it. And just that response, I'm like, oh God, I just wanna give you my, my time, my talent, my prayers, my treasure, whatever you want. I wanna give it to you and your purposes. Right, and in and, and, and finances, we, we call this progressive giving, where, where I just, honestly, I have a goal with my family. We just, we desire to give more away every year financially in view of God's mercy. I wanna give more of my prayer life to him every year. I wanna give more of my actions, my words, everything to him every, like just progressively give Jesus more and more because he has given us everything. If you've encountered Jesus, then this response is natural because Jesus has changed everything. One of my proudest moments as a, as a daddy was when my girls were, um, it was a few years ago, I was introducing them to missionary Sam in the sense of what he does. 
And so we, we, I was showing them this video, um, like a Life for the Innocent video, the, the organization that, that Missionary Sam works with, um, about these children who are trafficked into slavery and all this different stuff that happened and how Missionary Sam like, and, and his people, they kind of take these kids out of slavery and they put them in a home with families forever and all this stuff. And I remember watching my, my little, she was about five years old at the time, Adelaide. She's watching this video with like a very furrowed brow and just kind of like very disconcerted about what was going on. And after the video stopped, she kind of looked down and she ran into her room. And I was like, uh-oh, I gotta tell mom I just freaked out our kids because I showed them something, you know. And she comes back out and she's got her little piggy bank and she opens up her little piggy bank and she dumps everything in the piggy bank on the floor and she says, Daddy, I wanna give it all to the kids. If missionary Sam's gonna tell them about Jesus and their lives are gonna change, like, take everything. Which caused a snowball effect and my older daughter, Alethea, went back and she, went, she got her piggy bank. She brought it out and she said, me too, dad. Give it all to the kids. And I cried, man. I was just like, I was like, that's right, baby. That's a good, that, that's good, that's good. I'm crying right now. But it's just one of those beautiful things because when we truly encounter Jesus, right? Colossians 1.9 says, we're putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of our creator. Romans 8.29 says, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And part of being conformed to the image of Christ is to reflect his generosity, not as something we do, but something that defines us. Because this is who God is. This is not just a character trait of God. This is who he is. And in the same way, I want you to let your giving be more than just a bare minimum. Let there be an increase in giving every year to the things of God because the grace of God has so permeated your soul, it's transforming your life because this is who you are as well. You know, it's really interesting that the first act of tithe in scripture was given from Abraham to the high priest Melchizedek. Right? Melchizedek's kind of this mysterious character. We don't really know much about him, actually. But Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 9 through 10 says, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as the high priest over the, over, after the order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek's blessing, grace, and provision, Abraham offers the first biblical tithe in response. And Jesus, who has become the high and eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek, has also bestowed upon us the grace and provision for eternal life that is unmatched by anything or anyone in history. He participated in the ultimate act of generosity by giving himself fully and completely on that tree and giving everything on the cross to bear our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And in response to this, we give Jesus not only 10% of our income, we give him everything about ourselves. To the eternal priest, to the one greater than Melchizedek, Jesus, we give him everything. This is why Paul's heart exploded in praise when he got to Romans 12, when he said, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies or offer everything as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So friends, when we give ourselves fully and completely to God, our money, our time, our affections, our prayers, our talents, our lives, we still get the better end of this deal because <laughs> we exchange our dead, sin-soaked bodies and lives for life 
and life abundantly. We live the way we were actually wired and designed to live. And it's so freeing and it's so beautiful and there's so much joy there and there's so much freedom there that we think we're gonna get from all these relationships and money and retirement accounts and security. And it's not found anywhere. It's found in one person, the man Christ Jesus. And here's the deal. Maybe, maybe you're following Jesus, maybe you're not. But if today it just means you start opening your hand, you actually start giving 10% of your finances to God and you let him be Lord over your money instead of money being your Lord, you need to do that today, right? If you're giving a tithe and you're just like, man, I've never gave beyond that, stretch yourself, go for it. Get on the adventure with Jesus and let him show you what he can do and how amazing it is to watch him just bless those around you by letting you be the conduit of that blessing. It might mean that this morning you start following Jesus for the first time. You hear about this radically generous God and you're just like, man, he sounds pretty awesome. And he is. And he's calling you home this morning. It might be that you're, you're here and you're following Jesus and you're doing all this stuff, but, but you haven't been baptized. And you're just like, man, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. I'm gonna just give you, I'm gonna make that public proclamation of faith and say, yeah, you know what? I am with Jesus. This is my lifestyle. This is who I'm going to publicly proclaim, not just with my money, but with my life. Then you need to do that this morning. Because at the end of the day, it's not about your money. It's about who's worthy of your worship. And there's only one person who's truly worthy of it all.